fantastic. Thank you. We are going to be continuing in Colossians this morning, chapter 2, uh, verses 16 and 20 to 23. It's a bigger block than normal, so we, uh, we won't exhaust all of these things. I hope they, they, that we don't create more confusion, or that I don't. As you turn there, I want to refer to a book called Screwtape Writes Again, which is the sequel, actually, to C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters. If you don't know what those stories are, that is where the senior demon named Screwtape is writing letters to his underling, Wormwood, and he's trying to describe to him how to destroy the soul of a man. He tells him in this sequel that his goal is to replace true religion, true submission to Jesus Christ, true submission to his word and his church with what he calls churchianity instead. So replace religion with churchianity. And he writes this to Wormwood. He says, you must arrange to make him a devout Methodist or Anglican or Baptist or Presbyterian or what have you. Make him that. He must come to accept the church as a type of religious social club where people congregate. Nothing more. In a word, Wormwood, help him to become more religious, but for hell's sake, not more Christian. Now, unfortunately, we know that today it looks like Wormwood and those like him have done their work well. Many gather on Sunday mornings for social reasons and attachment to people, but certainly not to submit themselves to Jesus Christ and to his word. But there's also a flip side of the fun social club aspect of church, and that is where people are drawn together into these identifiable groups by what they do. What feels like religion, but without Christ in his word at the center. We like the rules and the ceremony and the rituals or the emotion that's ginned up and the perceived spirituality of the group. And they make a person feel holy and kind of set apart for a time. And all people fall into this in one way or another. The question is never whether one is religious. Everybody worships something or someone, even the atheists. The question is always, on what is the religion grounded? And if it is not devotion to the living Christ as revealed by the Holy Bible, then it will be an empty, man-centered exercise that will lead to nothing good, only eternal torment. Now, our text this morning continues these warnings that Paul has given the church. And we begin in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts or rules and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism, 
and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that your spirit would guide me in speaking and help me to be clear and keep me from speaking anything in error. We pray that your spirit would be at work and each person actively listening, that you might soften hearts, that you might transform lives, conforming us always to the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here what we're reaching at the end of chapter 2 is the end of a section that began back in verse 8. And you may recall that this was characterized by three warnings that were given to the church. In verse 8, we were told, first off, to be active in our faith. Be active. See to it, the verse says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, the key point of verse 8 is a command, really, just to stay away from false teaching, to be a Berean, to always return to the Scriptures. And it really kills the idea that you can go to a church that is just a social club that either ignores the Word of God or bends it and mangles it and twists it out out of truth. Now, our passage this morning now continues that theme and has two final warnings for the church. But the passage, we have to note, begins with that word, therefore. And when we see the word, therefore, we always ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? So that's what we do. And when we see it, we know that it connects back to verses 10 through 15, which is where we've been the last couple of weeks. And it's connecting back there because it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that these Colossian Christians are saved and all Christians for all time are saved. We're reminded in 1 Peter that we're told to live as those, as a a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We're told to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, and to fear God. And now Paul is writing to the church in this vein, saying we must not let anyone impose spiritual or religious programs on us that are not firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and His Word. And we're going to cover these under four headings that you see in your outline. And I kept it short and just used the word against. You could add warning before that, right? It's a warning against legalism, against mysticism, against asceticism, and, and we'll define that term, and Christian liberty, which we'll barely touch on this morning, but we will close with that. And our text begins with a warning against legalism, which is a favorite criticism of anybody who's religious today is, They're legalistic or they're like Pharisees. So whenever I come to these warnings on legalism, it it makes me a little bit nervous because I think our modern issue is probably more with what's called antinomianism, where we want to ignore all of God's commands. Yet legalism is important to cover, and we have to balance it because those who were in Sunday school this morning know that they covered the tabernacle, which is sometimes hard to read through the Old Testament, all of these details. God is very particular about how we worship Him and how we come to Him and how we express our love of Him. And He does not change. But when we come to legalism, people often confuse this with treating all obedience and all reverence for God as legalistic. And that is a misuse of that term. Our obedience to God's commands and the Holy Spirit's work within us to to transform us throughout the course of our lives, to conform us into the image of God such that we love what God loves and, and the and is important, that we hate what God hates. 
that we approach worship with reverence and awe for the almighty sovereign God. That is what many wrongly call legalism. So you'll have to balance this by remembering the words of our Lord, right? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He charged the apostles with a verse we know well. It's the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And when we look at the apostle Paul and you read through his letters, and you read through the book of Acts, you know that nobody knew discipline and obedience like the Apostle Paul. He trained his body and he trained his mind for the glory of Christ. He said that he counted all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy, he points out, using a sporting analogy, and Paul loved to use athletics as an analogy, he said, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rule. And following the rules of Christ are therefore important. And yet legalism poses an extreme threat to lost souls because it presents a religion that is based on human achievement. So I want you to sort of get this definition of legalism. Legalism demands that we have to live a righteous, holy, good life in order to be loved by God and worthy to be saved by Jesus. Legalism demands that we must live by the rules and follow them correctly in order for God to love us and in order to be saved by Jesus. That is legalism. It gets the order of salvation and obedience backward. It measures the degree of our spiritual maturity and our well-being based on how well we comply with a set of rules, often man-made rules and rituals within a church. And in some respects, it's the most common religious problem, even with our own circles, because external obedience to rules actually looks and feels very religious to us. We as a people, we understand rules. We understand rituals. And even though sometimes we complain about rules, we actually tend to like them. It makes us feel comfortable with what we're doing. And so we often tip into a works-based religion, thinking that there's all of these things that I need to do to add to the work of Christ that saved us. And so legalism really doesn't do any good whatsoever because ultimately it hides the disobedience and it hides the rebellion that resides in the heart under this veneer, under this covering of what looks like piety and religion and faithfulness. But ultimately, it's easy to follow a list of rules without a heart devoted to Christ. It's very easy. And then it leads to unwarranted judgment. We tend to judge others. And then we feel like we must earn God's love by following these rules. And that dishonors the very nature of God. And it dishonors Jesus Christ. Because we know that we love only because God loved us first. He sent His Son when we were yet disobedient and rebellious sinners. So Paul begins to address this problem in the church in sixteen, in verses 16 and 17, and he's warning about legalism using two categories, and we can apply this broadly, but he uses the categories of matters of food and drink, and then the observance of special religious days. Verse 16, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Now, we know that when he talks about judgment, when it comes to food and drink, he's referring to the dietary laws given to Israel. And we're not going to turn there, but if you're super curious about those, Leviticus 11 lists those out for you. And it's not a unique issue, interestingly enough, to the Colossian church. It's not even a unique issue because there are those who struggle with the same things today. But the church in Rome faced the exact same things. And Paul would write to them and say, look, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. We don't pass judgment that way. We don't measure that. These are matters of of conscience. And legalism leads to false judgment of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want to pause there just to note, because I hear all the time, don't judge when we speak of matters that clearly need to be judged. And we are called to judge each other in the sense that we are called to call each other to repentance and faith and to be holy, for our God is holy. But we're not to do that with matters of conscience, matters of preference, these false religious rules that we come up with and stack on top of each other so that we might appear religious or dedicated or holy. And it really goes both ways. As somebody does something because they feel strongly convicted of that, it's not spoken against in Scripture, we're not to judge them. They're not to judge us for not following those same rules. But in these particular cases, the judgment is particularly wrong. And Paul enumerates why. He looks at these dietary rules, and we need to know that first, they were put in place for a very specific reason. Spiritually, these were a reminder to the Israelites of a distinction between purity and immorality. It was a constant reminder in their daily lives, within their consciences, that they were set apart from the surrounding nations. They were a people called to God himself, and they were not to intermingle with the pagan nations around them. That was the first reason, but the second reason is actually more important for us. When Jesus came, the dietary laws were abolished. In Mark 7, Verses 14 and 19, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And, he, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart? But his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Well, that wasn't the end of the matter, right? We often have a hard time letting these things soak in. The lesson was then given to Peter. Again, when Peter in Acts chapter 10 sees a vision three different times of all of these animals, clean and unclean together, and God says to Peter, What God has made clean, do not call common. These things have gone away. The church in Corinth also faced the same problem and was told, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. To the Roman Christians, again, Paul confirmed, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, holiness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. These things are not the things that we divide over and pass judgment on. Now, there are matters of food that are sinful. Gluttony, we know, is sinful, and we're to care for our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, as a gift from God, so we shouldn't live on energy drinks and candy, right? We we know that. 
But we're not to judge others, is what Paul is getting at here, in a religious way, based on their perceived devotion to God or the lack thereof based on these rules that come up. They're just external matters. They show us false sense of piety. And they do nothing to bring us closer to Christ. The second category is the observance of special religious days, particularly the Jewish celebrations. Festivals, new moon, and Sabbath, that is a shorthand way of pointing to the annual celebrations like Passover, the monthly uh, sacrifice that was made on the new moon, and the weekly celebration of the Sabbath, which was the seventh day of the week, or it was Saturday, right? And just like the dietary laws of the Old Covenant taught purity before God, the annual, monthly, and weekly celebrations pointed to and taught the people expectantly about the coming Messiah. And all of these celebrations had their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which is why when Paul writes to the Romans who were caught up in this same debate, he says, look, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's not sinful to observe them, but it's sinful to judge others on the basis of whether you observe or don't observe. We no longer as Christians celebrate Passover, for example. It was a feast that remembered how God had executed judgment on the Egyptians and freed the Israelite slaves, but it delivered the Israelites in a, in a, in a specific way, right? It was, it was based on the sacrifice of a perfect lamb and then the application of that blood to the household in which God's judgment then passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. And that clearly points to Jesus Christ where it, fall, it finds its fulfillment Because Jesus made the once for all perfect sacrifice. He was the only perfect lamb. And it is by his blood that he delivers his people who repent from sin and trust in him and sets them free forever. Not from captivity in a physical way, but from the bondage of sin. And he reconciles them to God forever. So he instituted something new that we do celebrate and we do it monthly here and that's the Lord's Supper. And we remember that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now the Sabbath is a tricky one and it deserves more time than we're going to spend on it today. But the Sabbath obviously was observed under the Mosaic Covenant. It came with a whole host of rules. But it ultimately pointed to the rest that the people are to find in the Messiah, much like the promised land pointed to the rest. God's message is clear that he's going to bring his people into rest. It is why it's so special when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in him. Christians from the earliest days did not observe the Sabbath, but worshipped on the Lord's Day. Now you see that in Revelation, and the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. It is Sunday, and we do that because we come together to remember and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, verse 7, gives us that first little picture of what that worship was. The perfect rest never came until Christ. It did not come when Joshua led the people into the promised land, and it did not come through the Old Testament practice of following all the rules around Sabbath-keeping. True rest was always to be found in the Messiah, in Christ, to which that day pointed. Hebrews 4.10 says, Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. Right? And how many times do we say that 
We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works. It is a gift of God that no one may boast. We find our rest in Jesus Christ. Now, we would need to spend a lot of time on the Sabbath uh, to really do it justice. But I want to make two comments that you can just sort of keep and we'll come back to it maybe someday. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament is there any command for Christians to observe the Sabbath. And here we're speaking very specifically about that day that the Jews celebrated under the Mosaic law. There's no evidence that the Gentile believers observed the Sabbath day. And in fact, when the Jerusalem Council met in Acts chapter 15, they gave a list of commands that that Christians needed to follow. And what they did not mention was Sabbath keeping. But there is a flip side to this, and this is just as important. We do not have nine commandments today. We have ten commandments. And so we don't just overlook the fourth commandment, which calls us to set aside a day to worship and honor and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian church has routinely done this from the very start on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week. So on Sunday, we are still called, all who are part of the new covenant, uh, through their faith in Jesus Christ, we are still called to gather together in person and worship. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us not to neglect that. We are still called to honor God above all things. We must set aside work, we must set aside hobbies, we have to set aside sports, and we have to devote this time to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to save his people, and he is worthy of all worship and praise and honor. He must be preeminent in all things, says the Apostle Paul. And it is in Christ that we find our rest. So the fourth commandment doesn't go away, but how we worship changes. Paul's not addressing here the ongoing command to gather and worship and rest in Christ on the Lord's Day, what he is addressing is a legalistic application of the Sabbath and all its rules to Christians who otherwise find their rest in Christ. And this is because, he says, the Jewish holy days and the dietary laws were nothing more than a shadow. Right? And a shadow doesn't exist on its own. There's a reality that exists that makes the shadow. A shadow has no substance of its own, It points to the reality and the truth that is revealed in Christ as revealed in Scripture. He says the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 17. Any continuing obsession with the shadows is a denial of the reality of Christ. And it is fruitless legalism. And we have to be warned of these things. You see it even today because following rules... Following dietary rules or or getting hung up and judgmental about observing special days or ceremonies or rituals or things we do in the church, it intrinsically appeals to our flesh. But we can do this even between denominations, by the way. But we can judge those who follow a liturgical plan and we do something different and we think they're wrong and they think we're wrong and we can get all wrapped around the axle on that. And we're told, no, don't do that. Where is your faith? Is it in Jesus Christ, the Lord of all? How we worship may differ a little bit, but we like rules. It's something that we can do, and we like rituals because it makes us feel religious. And then it leads to this problem. It becomes a way that we can sinfully compare our spirituality with other people. We become very judgmental. And it's why we default to legalism. It makes us feel better, and then it makes us look at others 
in a different light. They're not as holy. Now, it comes with some dangerous marks, and I'm just going to read how one commentator puts it. I'm not going to point out examples. I think sitting here this morning, you can all uh, come up with these examples without me calling them out. He says, legalism is inherently joyless and spawns judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is miserable for the judge and the judging because it shrivels their souls. Second thing he points out is legalism demands uniformity. Because whenever you find legalism dominant, you will find people who dress the same way and use the same speech, posture, and manners. Do nots produce a grotesque uniformity. And finally, legalism produces a surface faith because its adherents emphasize the things which are not really important. Their do-nots ignore deadly sins such as coveting, gossiping, slandering, bitterness, and hatred. Legalism limits one to shallow self-righteousness and then damns him. So the overarching point that Paul is making, and the problem exists today, is that true religion, true spirituality, depends on having trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience to his commands are a result of faith. It is a result of being born again. It is a result of knowing his will through scripture. Otherwise, external rule following is meaningless. You're not going to earn your way to God. He turns then to a second danger against mysticism, verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sound effects for you. I have to make my own sound effects. I don't have a machine or anything. Puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is, that is from God. Now, I use the term mysticism to capture this because mysticism is just an overarching belief system that is devoted to seeking a higher or deeper subjective religious experience. It is subjective because it's based on emotion, it's based on personal experience, internal things. It's not objectively taught in Scripture. It's not objectively measurable in any way. And it is the foundational tenet for much of the New Age movements that go on on around us, a lot of the secular movements, and a lot of the hyper-charismatic movements in the church today. Many of you know in my background, I was part of and served in a church that went down that path. And I remember very well the damage that was done when a guest speaker came into town and spoke to the youth group over a series of nights. And over and over again, he emphasized as they drummed up emotion that unless they were able to manifest some spiritual gift, which took the form of babbling, that they were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was crushing to the youth. It really was. I'm not making it up. There were so many tears shed, so much counsel being sought, Many of the kids lied, they faked it, but some agonized over it. They could not believe what was wrong with them. Why were they being spiritually disqualified from the kingdom of God? Why had God passed them by and blessed these other people? This is the very nature of the second warning. This is the type of things that get drummed up. Let no one disqualify you, Paul says. No one is sitting as the umpire or the judge 
ready to cast you out of the faith once for all delivered to the saints on the basis of some fanciful notion of spirituality. He says these people are insisting on, and depending on which translation you're looking at, it might be better understood as delighting in or taking great pleasure in a false type of humility, which is captured by the word asceticism. We're going to come back to that. It's used in a couple ways in our text. Here, what it's pointing to is a very false sense of humility. It's sort of demonstrating to people, I'm so holy, I'm so pious, and look how God has blessed me. You can think of it in terms of what Jesus tells the disciples about fasting. He's condemning the Pharisees in Matthew 6, and he says, When you fast, don't go out and look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Why does he call them hypocrites? He calls them hypocrites because it is a false humility to show how holy they are and how unholy others are. It seeks to show that they're closer to God in some way. He tells his followers instead, when you fast, don't let anybody know. Anoint yourself with oil. Look like you're doing great. So don't let those who like to put on a false sense of humility look down on you. Show you how much they're willing to suffer and disqualify you from the faith. This false humility likely drove them in to a path of a very errant, very wrong theology. Because what it says is they not only did this, they worshipped angels. They worshipped angels, created beings, angels who were told in Scripture long to look into the salvation that is offered to men. That is thought, and commentators write this, that it is much like how the Roman Catholics pray to Mary or to the saints as a way to appease Jesus Christ. And praying to angels in the same way. It's not spiritual. This is not super spiritual. This is idolatry. It is absolute debauchery. It is a slight against the very character and nature of Jesus Christ who lived and died to save his people because he loves us. Jesus says to us, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He does not say I'm a wicked, evil judge that you must go and find some way to approach me. He is there for us if we call. And we don't have to elaborate on why you shouldn't pray to dead people and even Mary. But the apostles, you'll note, there is something unique about coming into the presence of a spiritual being. And there is a desire then to worship these things that we don't quite understand. The apostle John says in Revelation 19, he comes into the presence of an angel and he says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's it. That's it. Worship God. To pray or worship anything else or pray to anyone else other than the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a denial of the fundamental truth that there is only one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, They went on and on, these false teachers, about these visions that they were having. Some extra-biblical revelation. And I wish that this was a first-century problem, that we had to go research. But all of you know that it's not. YouTube is chock-full of this. So-called Christian television is chock-full of it. Uh, There are pulpits that are full of it. A lot of the God told me as I drove in this morning type stuff. It's nonsense, but people actually love it. I mean, people flock to it. 
It shows us something about how we think. People want to believe that certain men or women are specially chosen by God to receive extra-biblical revelation and then share it with all of us in some nonsensical way about these visions that they have had. And yet the Bible tells us there is no need for this. Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, and visions were one of those ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the days in which we live, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. These Colossian false teachers and their modern-day equivalents are not on a higher spiritual plane. It's something I used to hear a lot, that that person's on a higher spiritual plane. They're closer to God. They are not. The only thing that has them elevated, Paul says, is their puffed-up, sensuous minds, caught up in things that they shouldn't be caught up in. Now, when we look around us, we know that there are people who know far more about each one of us, about the Bible and about God. There might be people who are more mature in their faith. They walk in closer devotion to Jesus Christ through their strong faith, their great prayer life, their obedience to Him, and they may experience, as we look at them, greater manifestations of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, and they seem to go through even the trials without being rattled. There may be people we look to who have gifts that we don't have, gifts of evangelism or teaching or faith, or mercy, or service, or other gifts that you admire and wish to have. This does not create a pecking order of Christians. These are all people that we should look to as being on the same level as you and I, and they are to be emulated, to be copied, to be learned from. But the fact that all Christians mature at different rates is not a matter that should evoke judgment in one way or the other. Or the risk of disqualification, that you're not where they are in their faith at that moment. We have baby Christians and mature Christians. The Christians to look up to and to follow are those who have not lost their hold on Jesus Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Right, Colossians 1.18? That is what Paul observed about these false teachers. They were consumed with mystical fascinations, with religion. They were not, as he says, holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. What you see in that verse is that the unity of believers in Jesus Christ is provided by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 tells us we are to maintain the unity that He provides. Divisiveness within the church comes from sin, it comes from envy, it comes from coveting those people, from elevating man. And it comes from a fascination with the talents and the gifts, even false gifts, that other people have. Spiritual growth, both individually and corporately in the church, comes from one source. And that is Jesus Christ in our union with Him. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing apart from Christ in full devotion to Him that will contribute to your individual growth or the growth of a church. It is spiritual growth that we're focused on, but that is true with numerical growth as well. Both come from God. God is responsible for both of these things. 
But a clear desire in the first part of Colossians, as you know, is that believers will grow in wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ through the teaching of the full counsel of the Word of God. So we can use that, right? Anyone who makes something other than knowing Jesus, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, anyone who makes anything else a goal or a requirement for spiritual growth is to be avoided at all costs. Jesus Christ is fully sufficient. There is nothing else needed. As 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 puts it this way, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Brings us to the third warning, actually, against asceticism. Because some would seek to appear religious and tackle their sinful desires on their own, rather than in Christ. They would do that by living ascetic lifestyles. Now, asceticism is a fancy word that just means, I think the best example would be a monk, it just means self-denial, extreme self-denial. A monk, you know, who gives up all worldly possessions. A monk who takes vows to impose suffering on himself in various ways, denying basic human needs, certainly not enjoying anything in creation. That is what asceticism means. Verses 20 and 22 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Precepts means rules. Paul warns that a practice, then, of extreme rule following and self-denial is nothing more than a worldly religion. It's based on elementary principles or elemental spirits. In Christ, we've been set free. In Christ, we have been redeemed. We find our righteousness in Him, not by imposing restrictions on ourselves. And He calls us to delight in His creation. We just must delight in His creation under His Lordship, in accordance with His will. Paul here is asking us to consider to really consider whether we have indeed died with Christ by placing our full faith in Him. You may remember that from the verses last week and the week before. Because if you have, you must consider the implications of that. Romans 6 says, For we have been united with Him, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. It's not through self-punishment or deprivation. It is our love of Jesus. It is seeing the beauty of Christ. It is wanting to please our Lord. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that crushes our sinful desires and orients us towards obedience and orients us towards enjoying the blessings of God in a way that honors and pleases Him because it's the way He intended. Righteousness and freedom from sin do not come from external rules and extreme self-denial. You know this if you've ever gone on a diet. You focus on, like, I'm not going to eat that one thing that I love. And the more you tell yourself you're not going to eat it, the more obsessed you become with it. And it eventually leads, usually, to a binge session, unless you are one of the few who is extremely 
extremely self-controlled. But the same thing happens when our lusts overcome us. And a person then engages in secret sin to fulfill all of these things because they've focused on the wrong things. Torturing the body, trying to suppress sin by self-denial just doesn't work. It focuses, as Paul says, on things that perish as they're used. They have no spiritual value. Jesus says again in Matthew, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Punishing your flesh will not change your heart. You can't do that on your own. It is the work of Christ that bought us freedom. It is our faith in Him. It is the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God that is fully sufficient to transform hearts and lives in the children of God. We don't actually need to be creative with new rules or rituals or mystical practices that give us an emotional sense of spirituality. And we certainly don't need to create new ways to deny ourselves an opportunity to enjoy God's creation by coming up with this false piety and self-imposed suffering to show how holy we are. Because if we are in Christ, we have what is called Christian liberty. Our final point, verse 23. These, all these practices, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value, says Paul, in stopping sin. You see, man-made rules never make a person a stronger Christian. What they make a person is a guilt-ridden hypocrite. A guilt-ridden hypocrite trying always to give the external appearance of being holy and religious to everyone around you by doing all of these right things, but without a heart that is transformed and devoted to Jesus Christ. If you look at any rules-based religion, any works-based religion, what you will find is a whole series of workarounds that are actually hard for those outside to make any sense of. And we know this by just looking at the community around us. It was true with Pharisaical Judaism. They had all kinds of rule, uh, workarounds on the Sabbath so that they could obey the rules and yet clearly be in disobedience. And it's true today in every one of these religions. Jesus warned that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So in our flesh, we gravitate always to these rules-based or works-based religions because it becomes a little easier for us. It's actually easier to avoid real spiritual transformation and devotion to Christ and being conformed to His image and instead follow rules that are just external. But we don't need to do that. We have to recognize, first of all, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over our entire life. And when we recognize that, we get Christian liberty, freedom in Christ, and it doesn't push us toward legalism. It doesn't allow us to stray into mysticism or asceticism. It doesn't push us to the other one, which is antinomianism. We know that we can't just run around and sin, but instead we will find freedom in Christ, freedom to not sin, freedom to worship, freedom to love each other, freedom to find true joy in life because that true joy comes from following Him each and every day. 1 Corinthians 6, we're given a little guidance. The small groups will 
focus on 1 Corinthians 10, which is a very similar passage this week. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Well, that question does not then demand as an answer the creation of a bunch of rules or self-denial. Instead, what we're called to recognize is that we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We are joined to Jesus Christ. And our solution to all of life is found at the foot of the cross. The very cross we saw last week on which we were purchased by our Savior. When all of our debt, all of the legal demands that came with it was nailed to that cross. We are told that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The message to the Colossians is the same as the message to us and all Christians. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, if we receive the benefits of His perfect obedience, and we participated in His death, burial, and resurrection through our repentance and our faith in Him, then we've already died to our old self. We have nothing to fear. We have certainly nothing to desire in false religious systems that are either promoting human philosophy or new ideologies or legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Any of these things is means to grow spiritually. Tells us in Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. We have freedom. We have freedom to live in Christ. We have freedom to worship in accordance with the Word of God. We have freedom to sacrificially love others. We have freedom to enjoy the very things that God created and gives us a desire for. Food, marriage, children, nature, the beauty around us. The list goes on and on. And most of all, we have the freedom and the command to go and reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ. To call them to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith that they too might experience this freedom and the joy of eternal life and true rest in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the weaknesses of your people. You know how we struggle. And Lord, you know well that we bounce between a desire to ignore the rules that you have given us and pursue sin and gravitate at the same time towards rules and judgmentalism, false practices that will make us appear holy but do nothing to please you. Father, we remember your word and the call that we might know Jesus in a true way, that we might live our lives in manners that are worthy and pleasing to him. We pray that by the work of your spirit in us, you continually conform us to the image of your son. We pray that the brothers and sisters that you have brought around us in this church family would continue to work on us just as we work on them as we grow together and sharpen each other. We learn your ways. Lord, we pray that as you work in our hearts, you would give us tremendous joy 
and recognizing the freedom that Christ has bought for us to enjoy your creation in accordance with your design and your desire and your plan. And Lord, we pray that we would walk in accordance with that plan, particularly the plan to redeem a people for your Son, that you would give us courage and boldness to reach the lost, a loving way to call them out of sin, a loving way to deliver the message of repentance and faith, and that through these things, the Lord Jesus Christ is always faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us understand the love that you have for your people and the sacrifice that was made to save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.